it's over 9,000! Super Elite Warriors to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. This is the Bikini, and I'm not complaining that space remains pretty boring. With no hyperdrive, it should still be a while before we reach another planet, so it's nice to not die for a change. Well, don't get too comfortable there, recruit. I'm picking up a power reading on my personal scouter, and it's big. Uh-oh, me too. 300,000? That's the biggest I've ever seen. I thought scouters didn't read over 100,000. The new models can show power levels of up to 1 million, though I doubt anybody's power level is that high, even Lord Frieza himself. Is he even 300,000? I've heard he's 500,000, nearing 600,000, but all I know for sure is that he's the strongest warrior in the known universe. With a battle power like that, why does he even need a fighting force? He can't be everywhere at once, Recruit. Do you have a bearing for that power level? Uh, I do, but it can't be possible. What do you mean? Well, it's only 500 kilometers at heading, uh, 05. So? So the nearest planet is 12,000 kilometers at heading 9-2. Oh. Well, hey, you were complaining that it was boring. I very specifically was not complaining. Whoa, uh, power reading is closing in on us. Be prepared to intercept this ship. Send out the signal to any available members of the Galactic Frieza Army, alerting them and telling them to be on standby. We may need to get in contact with the Ginyu Force, possibly even Lord Frieza himself. If this stranger is antagonistic, we'll have to hold out for as long as possible until backup can arrive. Crushed to death by an enemy with a 300,000 power level. Well, I've gone out worse ways. How long until intercept? Uh, about an hour, maybe less. Signals are sent. No response yet. Uh, backup may or may not be coming. Perfect. You can't possibly be serious. I'm dead serious. We've sent out a general signal. We're as prepared as we can possibly be. We're on a careful intercept course. There's nothing but time to kill for a while. So let's... Uh, oh, here it comes. Let's dive into today's topic. And today, we're going to be cleaning up some stuff from Dragon Ball Culture. It's a book series that we've been leaning relatively heavily on for a lot of our discussion 
as we've been working our way through the anime and the manga. It's really where we've been getting a lot of our information on where everything comes from, what the cultural impacts and what the literary inspirations are behind a lot of this stuff. We delved a little deeper into things with author Derek Padula in a recent episode, and we thank him for his time, but we can go back and talk more about some of the things that we left by the wayside now, because why not? There's so much content in these books and so many points of interest that our approach to the upcoming episodes and evaluations of episodes we've watched are, are or they will be colored by the information that we find in Derek's pages. So we're going to share some of that now before we get too much further. So as we've said, our approach in general is to attempt to sort of replicate our own experiences in a way when we get into this podcast. We watch some stuff, we enjoy it for what it is, we talk about it, discuss it, and then we go back and talk about it more and analyze it and figure out where things came from and what inspired them and the culture behind them and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously we're going back and forth and all over uh, because we're idiots. <laughs> we're, we're trying to cram thousands of years of history and culture, hundreds of episodes of animation and chapters of manga into these 50 minute discussions. And so there's tons of content to keep us flush. If we wanted to do a six hour episode on Goku, we could have, but you know, we want this to be a fun listen for people, <laughs> not necessarily uh, just an exhaustive and in-depth one. So we try to do as much as we can in the time that we kind of allot ourselves. So let's go back, though, and kind of quote-unquote plumb the depths a little bit and scratch the surface, scratch a little bit deeper, and find some stuff that's even a little further underneath everything we've already talked about. And we've spoken about this a little bit before, but Toriyama was at the end of material for Dr. Slump. He needed time off. Uh, or at least he asked for some. Torishima, his editor, told him to bring a new idea for the Dr. Slump replacement his way. Together, they came up with an idea after Toriyama's wife makes an offhand comment, and Dragon Ball is born. We've talked about how Goku comes to be created, and at length about connections with Journey to the West, but we haven't spoken about the formative process in depth. The rough drafts, uh, if you will. So Toriyama asks for his time off. He wants five months. Torishima only gives him three with a deadline to bring him a new idea. Torishima doesn't want Toriyama just twiddling his thumbs for months until he feels like writing again. He knows Toriyama needs to be pushed. Toriyama does, however, take a two-week vacation to China with his wife and Torishima. Not much is known about the trip except that they take it, but as we discussed a bit when talking about the temple and battlegrounds for the Tenkaichi Budokai, Toriyama's wife takes a lot of pictures, and these pictures wind up serving as material or uh, for Toriyama to study so he can draw his backgrounds and architecture in his manga. Right, and after this trip, Toriyama and Torishima, they're on the phone every day trying to come up with an idea, and they just can't figure out something that they think is a good enough idea to replace Dr. Slump that they both agree on. I'm sure Toriyama probably says something... And Torshima's like, that's that's terrible, because <laughs> remember, that's the kind of mentor and editor he is. He's just very blunt. And then Torshima probably set, suggests something, and Toriyama's like, that's way too much work, because remember, he's ultimately lazy. 
So they're they're nearing this like deadline, and Torishima then decides I'm gonna go to Tor- Toriyama's house so that they can brainstorm face to face, and they still can't think of anything. He's there for I don't know a day or a couple days, trying to think of something. They still can't come up with it, and Torishima's about to leave. He's about to head back home empty-handed. He's got nothing to give his bosses to replace a very popular manga, that being Doctor Slump. And this is when Toriyama's wife comes in with some tea. And as she does, she makes an offhand comment about how Toriyama is like a very atypical mangaka. I don't know if if she's maybe just saying to Torishima, like, why are you trying to brainstorm in normal ways? This guy doesn't behave normally like the rest of us. Because remember, she's a mangaka herself (laughs) or, or was right before getting married. She might be just saying, I don't know why you're trying to brainstorm normally because this guy doesn't work normally, so try an abnormal way or something, right? But Torshima's like, what do you mean by that? And so she explains that while most mangaka listen to the radio or something like that to have just a little background noise to kind of steady their hands while they draw and get into a rhythm while they're drawing, Toriyama watches movies. Torshima is taken aback. How can you do something as visual as writing and drawing a manga if you're watching a movie? Aren't these two ideas mutually exclusive? And he's like, Toriyama, my guy, <laughs> explain. So Toriyama then tells him that it's a movie he's seen 50 to 100 times. And he just listens to the background dialogue and the noise and only looks up when it's time for the good parts. So we could pretty safely assume that this movie in question is Drunken Master at least in this specific scenario that they're kind of talking about, because we know, A, that Toriyama has seen it or claims to have seen it hundreds of times, and we know there's a lot of Jackie Chan influences in Dragon Ball, and that that was the intention when Dragon Ball started, that they wanted to make a martial arts manga. So Torishima is like, oh, that's it. That's That's the idea. Make something inspired by this movie that you love, so much that it's imprinted onto your brain. And Toriyama's like, uh, no. <laughs> he <laughs> he says, quote, the things I like and the things that I can draw in manga are different, so I don't want to. <laughs> uh, Torishima, again, knowing how and when and where to push Toriyama, does so at this point. And he sets a schedule. He's like, get it done, have it on my desk by this date, this is your idea. Run with it. He tells Toriyama to have it on his desk, and he just kind of leaves without further discussion. And Toriyama later admits that he cussed out Torishima over this, but then also that it obviously worked. Clearly. Now, throughout the weekly serialization of Dr. Slump, Toriyama is also tasked with creating something called Yomikiri Manga. Uh, these are one-offs that are meant to be sort of outlets for mangaka to showcase their other ideas that they have kind of rolling around in their heads. Basically, they're they're little one-shot stories, one-chapter mangas uh, that are meant for fun and are often independent and just a way for people to experience more from a mangaka that they like that's outside whatever serialized publication they might be working on at the time. So one of these Yomikiri that Toriyama published is called Dragon Boy. Now, this sounds like a very obvious Dragon Ball prototype, but it was just a two-chapter manga meant to be a test for like that general idea of that something based on Kung Fu. It was not the first draft of Dragon Ball or anything like that, but there are, were some similarities. 
the main character for this particular short story was named Tang Tong or like Tenton, I think is the English translation. Or Tonton, I yeah. It's some something like that. It's they, always kind they, of money with these. They sliced him open, and he was stinkier on the on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> that name literally translates to China boy in Japanese. So <laughs> it's a little, little rough. It, it might not uh, be. Anyways. It might not be as um, what's the word like? As de- as derogatory as as it sounds when you know translated directly into English. <laughs> True. There might be something lost in translation, I hope. But anyways, so Tang Tong uh, lives in hermit country, and he's tutored to martial arts by an elder master. He's got superhuman strength, and he's tasked with escorting a princess out of the war-torn country of Kanokuni, or Flower Country, uh, which is basically a fancy poetic name for China. To aid in the quest, the Elder Master gives Tang Tong a magical dragon jewel, which can be called upon for assistance when trouble arises. Though it's not wishes, as we know from Dragon Ball, it's kind of just like this little jewel that manifests dragons. And these little mini dragons pop out of these orbs that are supposed to assist Tang Tong when he gets in trouble. Dragon Ball is actually pretty well received, so Toriyama and Torishima know that if they go down this route, there's they, they definitely have an audience uh, that's ready and hungry for a kung fu manga. And the similarities are mostly obvious. You've got a young male protagonist protecting a young woman on a journey with magical dragon orbs to help them on the way, being given to them by an ancient kung fu master, as we saw previously in the anime. Also remember, in our episode discussing the manga for the 21st Tenkaichi Budokai, we talked about uh, Wuxia a little bit. Though Dragon Ball is more explicitly set, or sorry, Dragon Boy is more explicitly set in China, Toriyama referring to it as Kano Kuni is a tip-off to the Wuxia influences that would be imported to Dragon Ball. Additionally, the Elder Master rides a flying cloud. Uh, the princess comes from a wealthy family and is often yelling at Tang Tong about everything that he's doing wrong rather than thanking him for helping her. Also, that sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, yeah, and th- that that whole Wuxia thing... That's that that's that element of wuxia where things take place in China but it's like a fictionalized version of China. Right. Um so that's how that kind of ties together, yeah. Keeping in keeping with that tradition. Right. So we'll try to post some panels to our social media and you can kind of like look at the visual similarities yourself. Tang Tong looks a lot well not a lot but kind of just sort of like Yamcha slash Gohan hybrid. Of course, rather than the monkey tail, he has dragon wings, so that's that's one major difference, actually. But the princess looks a bit like Chi-Chi. The dragon looks like a miniature Shenron. There's even a transforming demon, which looks like some kind of cat creature, and it has like a three-minute time or three minute time limit on its transformations. It looks a bit like, like Puar. And it looks a little bit like Puar. So in true Toriyama style, he says he intended for Dragon Boy to be, quote, unconventional and contradictory, end quote. And this is evidence when the dragon pops out of the, the, the dragon jewel and winds up just being useless. <laughs> so Tang Tong just sort of rips off his shirt and uses his wings to solve the problems that are facing him. So yeah, that, that trademark Toriyama subversion of expectations. Here, let's use this jewel that has this magical protector that will save us. And then, nope, going to have to save ourselves. Yeah, and, and then just uh, it, it seems like it'd be like a – I don't know if you could keep it up. But but it's a really funny idea, right? To have 
the dragon be useless and then him just be like, oh, well, in that case, and then just rip off his shirt and use his, like, dragon powers. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, um, no, this dragon won't help us. Good thing I'm part dragon. Yeah. I don't know if you, like I said, I don't know if you could keep that up. <laughs> for for a serialized manga but it's a funny that's a funny gag for sure Um, yeah if you're if you're interested in dragon boy viz media has a collection of toriyama's early works published under the title akira toriyama's manga theater you know it was released in the u.s uh, december 7th of 2021 but in this time while he's kind of writing dragon boy toriyama also writes tong pu's great adventure or the adventure of tong pu about another it's another yummy curry or yummy curry about a young boy named tong pu who travels through space lands on a strange planet and meets a human girl named puramo or plamo this short-lived obviously manga has a lot of the science fiction elements that would appear in dragon ball tong pu uses these capsules to summon hover bikes and houses from thin air uh, and the girl then uses guns and her feminine beauty as her weapons. She even uses Eromi, I believe it's pronounced as, or Amorous Glance, which is something we see stylized throughout Dragon Ball often. It's kind of a you-know-it-when-you-see-it thing, but it's basically whenever you see like a, a girl in Dragon Ball uh, specifically, and this this is in tons of other, it's a, it's a trope that's used throughout anime and manga, when you see a girl that like ends up standing by herself and she's in like a, a kind of seductive pose and there's usually the background of whatever she's actually on kind of gets drowned out and it gets colored in with hearts or rays of pink light or whatever. And, and she's supposed usually to... like a, a saxophone riff in the background. Yeah. And she's supposed to be like coquettish and she's also using it to like try and distract or bring down the defenses of a guy that's irome that's kind of a trademark bulma thing and it's also we've we've seen it so far in dragon ball already with um what was what was her name ronfon yeah in 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 the tournament bulma is gonna be using it i think shortly she tries to use it on general blue i think is it general blue i think so but she she tries to use it on him. But anyways, this uh, this Paramo or this Plamo, she also shoots at Tong Pu when they first meet. And visually, she looks a lot like Bulma. Also, when she's shooting at him, I mean, if you put the panels side by side of her shooting at Tong Pu and Bulma shooting at, at Goku when they first meet, there's a lot of visual similarities there. So there aren't other real similarities other than some of these visual similarities and then like the the capsule element but there's some interesting kind of notes here uh, tong pu's name means something like winds of change and it's actually likely pulled from a song on yellow magic orchestra's debut album this is a, a band that toriyama mentions by name as being a favorite of his in one of his earliest interviews uh, Tong Pu is a cyborg, and unlike previous cyborg characters in Toriyama's manga thus far, he explicitly refers to himself as such. So, Arale does not consider herself a cyborg, apparently. Again, having not experienced Dr. Slump, I'm not sure, but yeah, this is Tong Pu says, I am a cyborg, um, which is different than Android, also. 
which um, is, I believe, something they get wrong in the translation of the anime. Because I think it's implied that the androids used to be human. Yes. So which that would technically make them cyborgs and not androids. I don't know if that's a translation error. I really don't know. Well, that's well. We'll look into it when we get to that part, I guess. Yes, I don't know if that's a translation error or just Toriyama trying to be like they're androids, but they're not androids, or Tor- or really, if or it's... maybe he was he was too lazy to look up the difference between android and cyborg and <laughs> just it, picked one. It could be that. It could also be he wrote them as androids, and then later he had Krillin and eighteen have a kid, and someone was like, "Isn't she an android?" And he was like, "Oh, dip." Not a normal android. <laughs> that sounds very that. Toriyama. I 100% could see that. <laughs> a big difference between, you know, what would become Dragon Ball and uh, the adventure of Tong Pu is he's the more, he being Tong Pu is the more cultured and worldly in some ways. He knows what these capsules are, but this Plamo doesn't. And as for her, Plamo, her name is a portmanteau blending the words of plastic and model together uh, as model building is a favorite hobby of Toriyama's and she has a model physique and she's quite shallow. So like a plastic model makes sense. Yeah. It's all, that's all a very, um, that is a, a very Toriyama kind of thing to do. Right. On top of that, in both dragon boy and Tongpu's great adventure, Toriyama inserts this alien or robot, I believe in Dragon Boy it's a robot, and in Tong Pu's Great Adventure it's an alien. Do not quote me on that, because it might actually be the opposite of that. <laughs> well, it's one or the other, so um, at least we can narrow it down. He inserts an alien or robot that's very visually similar to the pirate robot that we're going to be seeing popping up soon in the Red Ribbon Army saga. And it also looks a lot like um, Frieza's third form. Oh, right. The one with the really long head. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was confused there for a second. I was thinking of his final form for some reason. So it's after both of these that Toriyama starts working somewhat in earnest on coming up with Dragon Ball proper. And though it takes him basically just two days to create the first chapter, he does have some drafting along the way, at least in terms of character creation. Uh, But even before that, we can see influences from his earlier one shots appearing throughout Dragon Ball. Uh, For example... Take his 1981 Yomakiri called Pola and Royd about a cosmic taxi driver named Royd being hired by a teenage girl named Pola to fight an evil emperor. It features a female character wearing bikini armor, proposing to a man very quickly and becoming quite clingy to him. We can kind of see some similarities to Chi Chi there. In 1982, he published Pink, the Rain Jack story about a young girl named Pink living during a long drought who has to steal water from an evil company that overprices it and ultimately bring rain back as a whole as the company has captured a thunder god. So by releasing it, they bring back the rain. Uh, This features a bandit riding an air-powered bike with a small floating faithful companion by his side, very similar to Yamcha and Puar. Also, there's there's like that whole thing with the, the, the rain kind of ties in, I think, a little bit with Nam's character backstory as yeah. well. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that in there, too. We've also discussed how Wonder Island and uh, Girl Tomato Detective have some similar stylings in our Akira Toriyama episode. Also, we won't go into all the similarities because we will probably do an episode or several episodes on uh, Dr. Slump someday. 
Uh, but there's a lot of visual cues and similarities that exist between Dr. Slump and Dragon Ball. So it's clear ultimately that Toriyama has his own style and a sense of self that he carries throughout his works. Yeah. Like there's a character in Dr. Slump who I think it's God (laughs) (laughs) who is so similar to Roshi that he was like called out on it. I think we mentioned that too in an episode where I think it was our Roshi episode where we were talking about like where Roshi's kind of design came from. And like one of his readers was like, this guy design wise looks exactly like that character from Dr. Slump. And, to, and Toriyama was like, yeah, I just liked it. Get off my back. About it. <laughs> God, let me just, can, can you guys just let me have something to make my job easier? Why, I mean, why do you not, complain all the time? Not that he, he obviously, he was just like, Oh yeah, good. eye. It's just something I really liked and I wanted to keep using, you know? So yeah, we'll try and post some of these, panels and things uh to our social media so it's just kind of interesting you know when you look back and you see some of these things and you could pull them up and you get a feel for Toriyama's style and that kind of stuff interesting too how his style has very much changed over the years right like when you go back if you were to go back and look at say a later era Dragon Ball Z piece of artwork Mm-hmm. something from like the cell games era especially and put that up against like wonder island you would be like yeah i mean they're both manga but like t- they're not that similar <laughs> so it's just interesting how his style has changed over the years but if you put like wonder island or dragon boy or those kinds of things up against dragon ball it's it's very readily apparent um how that they're they're similar. His his style's gotten a little more angular over the years. I think he True. said that's because it's easier for him to draw, um, right. which that tracks. <laughs> and I mean, you can you can also take some of the works that he's done. So, for instance, like Dragon Ball, and then you compare it to stuff because he's done character designs for like the Dragon Quest games and stuff. Mm-hmm. And even though like stylistically, like one's a kung fu story, the other one's like classic sort of fantasy tropes. You see there's a lot of like similar character designs and there's a lot of uh, crossover with like uh, personality types and like how he draws those types of people to sort of convey that. Right. So, yeah, that's it, it's just it's just kind of an interesting idea of like having prototypes or rough drafts. I mean, yeah, Tor- Toriyama waits till the last possible second to start working on on <laughs> Dragon Ball. You mentioned he did he created chapter one in two days that's not like because he was suddenly inspired it's because he waited that long (laughs) (laughs) he waited so long to even start working on it that he couldn't he didn't have time to storyboard it out really he wrote like little storyboards and then just drew over them and made them panels because he didn't have time to do like storyboards so what he was using as storyboards were just panels because yeah, he didn't. He didn't. He had no time to 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 figure this thing out. Starting to wonder if he actually likes his job or not. Uh, <laughs> based on what he said, <laughs> it, it's just kind of interesting though. You go back and you talk about like like we were just saying. You know, he has a very a very strong sense of self and a strong sense of style that carries through his works. Not all creatives are like that. Some are, obviously, Toriyama being one of them, but let's just take, for example, I know it's a different medium, 
but like Peter Jackson, right? Peter Jackson sure. is super, super, super well known for Lord of the Rings and apparently The Hobbit. I don't, I don't watch those movies, but but he's super well. Their, wait, wait, they made Hob- Peter Jackson made Hobbit movies. <laughs> what are you talking about? I've never heard of such a thing. No, he wasn't. He wasn't strong armed into doing it by the studio. No. Who demanded he make three when he didn't want to make any? <laughs> it, <laughs> it didn't. It didn't burn him out so much that he hasn't made anything since. <laughs> no, there's there's no similarities at all between Peter Jackson <laughs> and Toriyama at all. But you but you look at he's so well known for Lord of the Rings, right? And those movies are are like lauded critically. And commercially, and, uh, and by fans, by fans, yeah. they're the gold standard. Pop popularity, like they're very popular, like they, they they're everything. They're they're hits in every imaginable possible way. True, but if you look at his early work, especially his first like three movies, the movies that he made in Australia when he was cutting his teeth, uh, that being Bad Taste, uh, Brain Dead, Dead Alive. That's the, the name. It's Brain Dead or Dead Alive. I forget which one is Australian and which one is U.S., honestly, but it's called one of those. Uh, the other one also is Meet the Feebles. If you look at those three movies, they are these irreverent splatter fests. There's no such thing as restraint in any of these three movies. And even right before he did, I think the movie that he did bef- right before... Oh man, I might I might be getting this wrong because I'm not sure if it's Heavenly Creatures, but but it might be uh, Frighteners. You ever see Frighteners with um, Michael J. Fox? No, I haven't actually. Oh, so it's it's Michael J. Fox is a paranormal investigator who literally actually can see ghosts, and he has an old timey sheriff ghost and like a '70s era. A disco black guy ghost who like hang out with him all the time and they con people out of money he has them like go be poltergeists in their house and then <laughs> exercises them and what ends up happening then the the kind of main thrust is that a a, a ghost or a demon or something that looks literally like death is killing people and marking them with furthering numbers uh, that relate to a serial killer that's saying like, oh, now I've killed 40 people and I'm going to beat so-and-so's record. And so he has to try and stop them. But it is like, it's another, like it's an irreverent comedy. It's, it's goofy and it's outlandish and it's got ghosts like punching each other and stuff. Like, <laughs> And then you get to the Lord of the Rings and, and there's obviously some fant- fan- fantastical elements to them and things, but like they're so restrained by comparison. True. And and they're so meticulously put together. And and I don't want to say that he was like a bad filmmaker or anything when he was making these other movies. I I love Brain Dead, and I I I like Meet the Feebles a lot. It is a it is the most irreverent Muppets parody you can possibly imagine <laughs> that sounds like fun is um is dead alive the one i'm thinking of with uh the scene with the lawnmower used to like 
murder yes. a bunch of people or something? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's also got the priest who's like, oh, I kick ass for the Lord. Um, <laughs> it's got like the the zombie baby who squeezes pus into people's soup. And it is an absolute insane movie. And and it's not like they're they're not like poorly made. I mean they're they're low budget and cheap, but they're really well made and they show that he's like got this kinetic, crazy energy and liveliness to his movies. And certainly there's pieces of that that kind of spew their way into Lord of the Rings, at least in terms of, you know, having some fun. I mean, there's there's definitely some fun to be had within those movies. They're not like just self serious all the time. Sure. But there's there's just no indication of this guy, you know, that that this right. this like irreverent splatterfest guy, you know, versus. I don't know, Tolkien, right? I mean, Tolkien did his Middle Earth stuff and then he did more of it <laughs> and then even more of it and then still more of it. You, you could talk about too, like like Stan Lee. I mean, Stan Lee, a lot of what he did kind of created what we think of as the MCU ultimately, right? Right. But I think I think when you like – I think Toriyama is some, somewhat comparable to Stan Lee where when you look at his early stuff and you kind of look at what it evolved into, you, you, can, you can see the, uh, the evolution. Sure. I mean, right. there's there's uh, characters I can think of uh, that di- that didn't start off in their own books. I mean, uh, the one that obviously is at the top of my brain is uh, Spider-Man started in Amazing Fantasy. Right. But uh, characters like the Punisher started in Spider-Man. He didn't even have his own series for a while after that either, I think. Yeah. Which Wolver- is like a guest, guest character in other spots. Wolverine debuted in a Hulk comic. That's right. And so, yeah, I mean – I, I, it's kind of like they, they're testing the waters with these new characters and seeing what works and what doesn't. And right. I, it, it'd be kind of interesting to go back and look at like old comics and see like guest characters and stuff that maybe didn't pan out too well and were never brought back. Yeah. It'd be interesting that, you know, I'm not I'm not super like I'm I, I know enough about Marvel comics and stuff, but I'm not like I haven't read like every single issue of all the old stuff that Stan Lee actually worked on. <laughs> True. I mean, yeah, um, those are, those are a little dated. And to go back and like, <laughs> see kind of how the, how his ideas progressed. And I, I'm drawing a parallel to Toriyama. Maybe I'm doing it unfairly to either one or the other of them. I do think there's some from a, from a far level though, parallels between Stan Lee and Akira Toriyama in terms of, they have a distinct style. They've always kind of shown that distinct style. They also have, and I think you and I have talked about this on offline before, they also have a very similar approach to fan fiction and arguments about power levels. <laughs> yeah. That being, it doesn't matter, I'm the writer, whatever I say just goes. <laughs> yep, pretty much. There's a really good YouTube video if you want. It's like four minutes long. Stanley gets asked the question, who would win in a fight between like Hulk and Thing? And he's like, that is the dumbest question that anyone <laughs> can ever ask me. I'm the writer. I say who would win. It doesn't matter what they've shown in comics before. 
Um, Makes sense. But then you can you contrast that too with Bob Kane and Bob Kane's well known among people. I think that he created Batman I, for for. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you for how long I would have said Bob Kane created Batman. Period. Because right. when you watch like the old Batman movies, they all say like based on the character created by Bob Kane. Right. That is is often the case in comics. It's not quite that cut and dry. Right. That's where you get into. If you don't know somehow, you're listening to us and you don't know. I'm, I'm glad we could drag Bob Kane's name through the mud. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Bob Kane came up with the idea of a crime fighter who would wear bat wings and stop criminals. He was like, what if we did that? He was in a room with a guy called Bill Finger. And Bill Finger was like, okay, so we would call him what? And Bob Kane was like, I don't know. He's a guy who wears bat wings and fights criminals and wears this red jumpsuit. And Bill Finger's like, what if we called him Batman? Because he's wearing bat wings. And Bob Kane was like, oh, good idea. And Bill Finger was like, and what if he wasn't wearing red? Because that's, you know, if he's a bat and he's a Batman, maybe he should wear like all black or like dark colors. And Bob Kane was like, oh, that's a good idea. And then Bill Finger was like, and what if we had him drive around in a Batmobile, like a car that was, and Bob Kane was like, oh, that's a really good idea. (laughs) And (laughs) Bill Finger was also like, and what if we had him fight against this really colorful cast of villains, like this guy who's, who's like a, like a, like a clown who, who's like a court jester, but he's like evil and maniacal. And what if we also had him fight against a cat burglar because he's he's a bat and he's Batman. And we had this cat burglar who's cat woman. And and Bob Kane was like, oh, those are all really good ideas. Boy, I'm glad I thought of them. (laughs) My ideas. Yeah. (laughs) Um, To to, to just go back to the whole Stan Lee thing again really quick. There's also – Similar situations with him and some of the folks, folks that worked at Marvel. Uh, on the top of my head is is uh, Jack Kirby. Yeah, they they did a lot of the same thing where they would sit together in a room and come up with ideas. And now there's a lot of contention over who whose ideas they actually are. Right. I, I think the difference, and obviously at a certain point, they've had you know Lee and Kirby and everyone that that they've worked with, and everyone everyone gets in these arguments about who owns what because the money starts being a thing. Right? right. But I do think right from the beginning, it was always like Stan Lee and then art by Jack Kirby. Right. Like, yep. They were both, they were both well, getting credits in the issues. They, yeah. They were both getting credited. This was like Bob Kane's Batman by Bob Kane with Bob Kane. And, like, Bill Finger's name was, like, not attached to it anywhere. And then on the bottom, there's an asterisk. We don't know who this Bill Finger guy is. <laughs> so that that creative process is is totally different than, you know, like, what Toriyama does, right? Um, right. So I, I, I just brought it up, honestly, just to contrast it with something of, like... Uh, I mean, it, it also it's also kind of similar in some ways, too, because you've got that, again, that sort of teamwork dynamic between Toriyama and Torishima as well, too. Right. Right. Although I, I will say, I think in their case, I think Torishima has always been more deferential to Toriyama. Sure. Yeah, and, I, I would I would agree with that. And being like, yeah, no, it's his idea. Like, it's his. Obviously, Torishima takes 
takes some credit and he deserves some. And I don't think Dragon Ball would exist without him because, also true. you know, <laughs> because who else could get Toriyama's lazy ass in line? <laughs> it, it really seems to me like he was like for him, for Toriyama, he was probably making enough money from Dr. Slump that he was probably just like, oh, I don't need to work ever again. <laughs> Probably. And Toroshima was like, no, damn it. Like, <laughs> we need to strike while the iron's hot. We have so much more money to make. I'm going to get fired. Like, <laughs> Bill Finger is credited in Batman stuff now, although it's this really weird credit. So, like, a lot of Stan Lee stuff, if Jack Kirby came up with the idea, it'll be, like, created by – based on the characters created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Yep. Right? The, the Bill Finger, Bob Kane thing now will say, based on the character created by Bob Kane with special input by Bill Finger or something like that. Like, <laughs> yeah, it makes it sound like his, his contribution was very small. Yeah, it, it's like a weird – I'm sure it was probably some sort of legal battle, right? I was and say, like, it sounded like it was probably argued by between lawyers or something. And it was probably something where his, his estate – basically like my guess pure guess right this pure guess is his estate wanted like credit and money and kane's estate was like how about just money and they're like no like we want credit too and he's like and it was like well how about some money and like a special credit it won't be the same level but you'll at least get some credit and oh okay yeah, so that, that seems it, probably most so that likely. at least people start knowing his name. And I mean, that's honestly that's where I first like had any idea about any of this, right? And I do feel like it's only within the last maybe ten years or so that this has become a more popularized thing that Bob Kane and Bill Finger like worked on Batman together. Like I said, I I'm not a super reader of comics. I've read like a whole bunch of X Men like a ton of X-Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've read like various Batman st- like graphic novel kind of stories. Right. But I always just assumed that Batman was created by Bob Kane. And now we know better. But yeah, so it's just kind of where all this stuff, where this stuff comes from and the genesis of it and how it comes to be is pretty interesting stuff. And whether you can see it kind of as a as a dna through line like you can with toriyama with dragon ball with dragon boy and with even wonder island or whether it's come seems like it comes out of left field like peter jackson it's always interesting to look at where people kind of came from to where they go to speaking of uh looking at where people came from i had an idea when we were originally coming up with this uh this topic and i'm surprised you didn't bring this up because he's your favorite author. But what about Stephen King, particularly the Dark Tower series and how much he references his own earlier works? Yeah, that's an interesting one, right? Like, especially those those books for people not in the know. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> very, very, very high level. If you don't know, it's a seven-book series written by Stephen King that tells the story of a gunslinger or like an old world knight essentially except that that's kind of what he is he's like a knight 
Um, but he's the, like the last of his kind, and he's a gunslinger. He's he's basically Clint Eastwood in any western Clint Eastwood's ever been in when Clint Eastwood was young. Yep. Trying to save all of existence, all universes throughout the multiverse from destruction, which will happen if this eponymous Dark Tower, which is this monolithic sort of figure that ties all of reality together gets toppled by the Crimson King and his agents of evil. Interestingly on those, especially the first one, The Gunslinger, was not originally written as a novel. It was written as a series of like short stories that were published in some long-form short story publishing science fiction magazine. Mm-hmm. When it was eventually collected then and kind of created, like made into a novel and something that he was going to continue, there were a lot of inconsistencies between what he was writing, what he wanted to continue writing, and some of the earlier pieces of this. And he actually went back and that first book, The Gunslinger, which was published as like 10 different entries into some literary journal or whatever. He went back and re-edited it and like changed certain character names because he had certain character names and certain characters like die or interact with each other or be different characters. And he actually kind of combined certain characters into the same character. So that's a very kind of King also has a very kind of Toriyama-esque writing process of I just start and then see where it goes. And, yeah, and he's yes. probably hounded less about de- deadlines, though. Probably. Especially, <laughs> especially now. <laughs> um, well, and, I mean, again, this gets into the whole different media thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, at a certain point, an author, like, would only be allowed by his publisher to publish, like, one or two books a year. Like, that was it. Because they didn't want you, like, saturating the marketplace. That's where Stephen King ended up creating uh, the Richard Bachman author. He had like so much work that was backlogging on him and piling up around him. And he he was like, A, let me try publishing some of this and getting it like off of my desk. But also B, let me see if I'm a good author like I think or if I just kind of got lucky at the right time. Like if if. Someone else, it, not named Stephen King, were publishing books the way I write them today. Would it still be successful? The Bachman books were fairly successful. Never quite as successful as King. Although eventually, like somewhere around the fourth one that he published, the, the lid got blown off. Right. And people figured it out. And so then they started selling very, very well. But like he would have been able to make a living as Richard Bachman. He just wouldn't have been as popular as Stephen King. So he kind of... Satisfied I bet that own... came with a nice little ego boost. Yeah, he kind of satisfied his own curiosity there. But yeah, the the Dark Tower books have a lot of like... And they're inconsistent too. And it's great. It One thing that I don't know that Toriyama has ever really done, but King does, is he reconciles any... Inc- and I, I love this. It's such a such a simple and elegant in in a very roundabout kind of way. Um, it, it, it is obviously a very extremely dense 
sort of mythology within the Dark Tower. But the the solution to inconsistencies in it is, oh yeah, that just happened in like another reality. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, multiverse. Yeah. Um, it's a simple and elegant solution, right? But it works. But so yeah, that's that's this is where where Dragon Ball came from. Okay, so that that killed some time. How uh how long until intercept now? Whoa, forty five seconds. And with no response to our general signal, we can assume we're either out of range or our transmitters are all damaged. Hit our distress signal and let's hope for the best. Hope for the best? That's the best you've got? Hope? In a patched-up ship with a combined battle power that doesn't scratch 300,000? You should be amazed I have any hope at all. You know, I could always... 10, 9, 8, 7... I see the outline of their ship, it's huge! 5, 4, 3, 2... Wait a minute. That's no ship. Is it possible? An actual living Ventuvi? I... Uh, I didn't know they tipped off scouters. I didn't think I'd ever get to see one. Listeners, for those of you not in the know, a Ventuvi is a gigantic fish-like creature with gorgeous purple scales fading to a softer purple underbelly covered in what looked like vents where smaller space fish for lack of a better description, huddle and live off the dust and rocks and debris that collect in the vents, which the Ventuvi use to convert solar radiation into energy and propulsion. Now, it's theorized that in order to achieve faster than light travel and move throughout the universe, Ventuvi can open holes into parallel dimensions and literally slip through space in mere seconds. And it is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. Has it slowed down? I think it's regarding us, or considering us, or just, I don't know. Aren't you supposed to know everything about biology? You keep confusing biology and linguistics for behavior. I can't pretend to know what a three million year old space leviathan is thinking. Three million? At least. Look, it must have decided we weren't a threat because it's clearly moving on now. And I guess we'll move on here as well, listeners. Will our hearts implode from the beauty of what we've just witnessed? Will even the glory of returning our ship to full working order compare to the creature we just witnessed? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. Final Form is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. 
And of course, make sure to share it with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership. 